If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. This is episode 6 of Cold Case Canada, Vancouver's first triple murder. Just a warning that this episode goes into graphic detail about the brutal and still unsolved murders of David and Helen Pauls and their 11-year-old daughter Dorothy. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. It was just after five o'clock on June 10th, 1958, when constables Bob Ingle and Russell Reed pulled up outside the Paul's tidy bungalow on East 53rd Avenue in South Vancouver. The first thing they noticed was the advertising flyers on the front porch. Reed, the junior partner, with just two years on the job, pounded on the door, and when no one answered, he walked around the back. He found the porch door unlocked, and he opened it and knocked on the inside door. He tried the door, found it unlocked, and called out, Is anybody home? The unfortunate 23-year-old Constable Reed was about to discover Vancouver's first triple murder involving two adults and their 11-year-old daughter. As he walked through the house, Reed noticed a woman's purse open with the contents spread across the kitchen table. He entered the hallway and saw Helen Pauls lying face down. Shards of glass from her smashed glasses were lying about her face. Blood spread out in front of her and around her head. She was wearing a dress, coat and shoes. Constable Reed bent down and touched her leg. It was cold. In a shaking voice, he called out to his partner, Bob, you should see what we've got here. Constable Ingle had his revolver drawn and he followed Reed inside to search the house. The horrified officers proceeded slowly along the hallway into the back bedroom. They found a young girl's body on the cot. She was wearing only the top half of her pyjamas with her left leg stretched out to the floor. Her clothes were neatly laid out, ready for the following day. The officers walked down into the basement. There was so much blood on the floor upstairs that it was dripping through the ceiling and onto the mat in the basement. As they entered the basement, the officers saw the fully dressed body of 53-year-old David Pauls lying in a pool of congealed blood in the otherwise neat and tidy room. Russell Reed, now long retired from the Vancouver Police Force, told me that the murders haunted him for years. In those days, there were no grief counsellors and he was traumatised by the scene and plagued with nightmares. The city was still reeling from Evelyn Roach's murder just two months before, 
and the subject of my last podcast. Newspaper stories ran with headlines that screamed, Chief Fears Fiend Will Murder Again, and Chief George Archer held press conferences warning women to travel in pairs or arrange to be met by a male escort. And the murder was still very much on people's minds. 45-year-old Helen Pauls worked the 3pm to 11pm shift at the Home Fancy Sausage Shop, a Russian-owned deli on East Hastings Street in the downtown eastside area of Vancouver. She arrived home on the bus at 11.30pm most nights, and every night since Evelyn's murder, David Pauls drove to the bus stop at Fraser and 53rd Avenue to pick her up. And then one night he wasn't there. David Pauls was already dead. Shortly before midnight, Helen's neighbour saw her running down the street trying to stay dry by holding a newspaper over her head. The neighbour's sighting of Helen gave the police a timeline to go on. Because there was no forced entry, investigators believed that David had left the house by the side door to pick up Helen as he always did. It was raining hard that night, visibility was poor, and David was carrying a flashlight which was later found in the grass of the backyard, along with some of his blood. The police theory is that David was crossing the backyard to where he kept their old pickup truck and surprised his killer. He was then forced at gunpoint to return to the house. A large pool of congealed blood found on the rear steps of the house indicated that he'd been shot there in the back of the head, struck twice with a heavy object, and then shot twice more at close range in the right temple. The killer dragged the 180-pound dead weight of David's body about three metres from the back steps of the house, inside and down the stairs to the centre of the basement. The killer then took a lace from a pair of David's shoes that were later found in a corner of the basement. He tied the lace around one of David's wrists. The rain muffled the sound of the gunshots to the neighbours. But police believed that the noise woke Dorothy and that she was sitting up in bed when the killer made his way up the hallway to her bedroom. According to Dr Harmon, the pathologist, Dorothy was found with a comforter placed over her head which had been smashed in by two heavy blows. The killer had pulled off her pyjama bottoms, but she wasn't sexually assaulted. Police believe he may have been interrupted by her mother. The theory was that Helen let herself in the front door, threw a purse on the kitchen table and headed along the hallway to Dorothy's room. The killer stepped out and shot her in the face. The bullet travelled through the lens of her glasses and into her right eye. She fell to the floor and he shot her again in the side of her head. He then began to beat her. He left the same way he came. As he cut across the yard, he dislodged a rock near the garage. The murders shocked the city. People wondered how anything this brutal could happen to what seemed like such an ordinary, hard-working, working-class family in their own home. At the time of their murders, David Pauls was a janitor with Woodward's, and Helen had worked at the Home Fancy Sausage Shop for the previous three years. Dorothy went to Walter Mobley Elementary School and they had a tabby cat named Tiger. Bizarrely, 
The cat's picture is in one of the crime scene photos taken of Helen's open bag in the kitchen. The Pauls owned a 1940s-style Grace Duco bungalow in South Vancouver, which in 1958 was a multicultural working-class neighbourhood filled with single-family homes with small backyards and low-rise walk-up apartment buildings. Helen loved to garden, and the Paul's yard was always neatly trimmed and bright with flowers. High scrubs surrounded the yard and the chicken coop, and it gave the house privacy and also an air of mystery. No one knew much about the Pauls, and that wasn't surprising. They both had full-time jobs and spent most of their weekends in the Fraser Valley. Helen's boss, Edward Polloway, described her at the inquest as a devout Mennonite who didn't drink, smoke or wear lipstick. People told reporters that the Pauls seemed to be a hard-working, frugal couple and they couldn't imagine that they had any enemies. As one neighbour said, they were very nice people and there was no drinking. They never bothered anyone. Both David and Helen were born in Russia of Danish descent and grew up in German-speaking Mennonite families. David came to Canada in 1923 and worked as a farmhand at the Funk family's dairy farm in Hague, Saskatchewan. He married Helen, the Funk's youngest daughter, and one of ten children. Helen died in childbirth in 1930, at just 23 years old, and David bought a small farm in the Mennonite community and worked there for another ten years. David's second wife was also named Helen. David married Helen Coop in 1940, and they moved to the Fraser Valley, likely to be closer to David's family. David's mother, father, and brother Henry lived in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Another brother, George, lived in Kelowna, in BC's interior. David was close to the Funk family, and several of his former in-laws had already moved to the Fraser Valley. For a time, David worked at a sawmill, and in 1953, the family moved to Vancouver. City directories show that they lived first on Sophia Street and then on East 44th Avenue with another Mennonite family. The Pauls bought the house on East 53rd Avenue just 18 months before they were murdered. South Vancouver of the 1950s was a very different demographic than it is today. There was a large Mennonite Brethren Church at 43rd Avenue and Prince Edward Street. The services were in German, and German was freely spoken in the neighbourhood. According to a newspaper article in The West Ender, written by Joe Swan, a Vancouver police sergeant who worked on the Paul's murder case, Helen's father had been murdered in Russia at the time of the revolution. Swan said that she'd complained to a number of her relatives that her current employer was a communist and that other communists would gather in the shop where she worked. And you've got to remember that back in the 50s, the whole communism thing was huge. People thought that there was a, a red under every bed. It was also rumoured that drugs were sold at the store where Helen worked. But Joe Swan says this was never substantiated by police. Police do believe that the murders occurred late on Tuesday, June the 10th. When Helen failed to show up to work the next day, her boss tried to call David at his work. When he heard that neither Helen or David had reported to work, he called police. Dorothy's friend, 12-year-old Edel Friesen, was likely the last person to see Dorothy and her father alive. 
She told a reporter that she dropped by that day and found Dorothy practicing piano. They talked for a little while and then Ida left around 7pm. Dorothy, she said, told her that she was going to her room to do her homework. Immediately after discovering the bodies, officers cordoned off the house and yard. The adjacent vacant lot on the east side and a yard and house that was under construction on the west side. Detective Inspector Archie Plummer, Detective Sergeant Bill Morford, a team of four detectives, six constables, four commando squad members and police officer Don Hocken and his tracking dog Polar searched through an abandoned car found nearby and through garbage cans and in the brush on the lane for either the gun or the weapon that was used in the murders. Nothing was ever found. More than 300 people stood outside in shocked silence as ambulance men brought out the three bodies, one at a time. One woman from the area told a reporter that she had chained her doors ever since the murder of Evelyn Roche. She said she would now use tables and chairs to barricade her doors until the killer was captured. Detective Sergeant Percy Easler, head of the Police Science Bureau, supervised a team of forensic staff as they collected blood samples and casts of the shoe print, David's blood-stained fedora hat and other evidence from the house. The house was then dusted for fingerprints. The murder weapons were never found, but forensics determined that the bullets came from a Rome RG-10 revolver. This was another dead end, as the guns sold in drugstores throughout the United States for $14.95 under the brand name Roscoe. I've never heard of the RG-10 before, and I was intrigued how a gun could be bought so easily and cheaply and transported into Canada. There was a theory that the murderer had used the butt of a gun to kill Dorothy and inflict so much damage on Helen and David Pauls. So I asked Vancouver lawyer Richard Barrow, who has a knowledge of gun law in Canada, to tell me a bit more about this weapon. It would be incredibly unlikely that anybody could have seriously pistol-whipped somebody with that uh, with a particular uh, gun. This is the sort of gun that somebody who had no knowledge or interest in firearms buy for... 12 or $14, and just stick in a drawer and for, forget about it. It's not someone that had a serious interest or familiarity with firearms would get. So what sort of person would be carrying this RG-10? Obviously not somebody with real criminal connections. Peeping Tom, somebody very marginal who managed to pick it up somewhere. I mean, this is little more than a starter's pistol. And I'm sure there were not many of these around in Vancouver or in Canada. You know, it's an extraordinarily cheap and really somewhat unusual firearm. The gun is a complete Saturday night special. I wouldn't want to emphasize this because it's a bit morbid, but really the only way you could inflict a fatal wound on somebody with one of these things would be by a very close range shot to the head. It might take more than one. Yet another baffling aspect of this case was that detectives had found the initials DP and HT scribbled in a young person's writing in six-inch high letters on the Paul's back door. It's unlikely that the fastidious and strict David Pauls would have left it there very long. And it was never determined who put it there. Possibly Dorothy, or the boy himself had done this. More likely it was some mean girls at Dorothy's school. 
or perhaps someone else entirely, and I'll get into that a bit later in this podcast. From information that came out at the inquest, we know that Dorothy was being bullied at school because of her strict Mennonite upbringing. We also know that she was rebelling against it and wanting to dress differently, to wear makeup, and to go to school dances. Although she was only 11 years old, she spent some time alone at home most days because of her parents' shift work overlapping. At the inquest, Helen's boss, Edward Polloway, testified that Helen had told him that Dorothy was being bullied at school and getting some rough treatment at the hands of other children. Once, she told him, one of the kids had held a knife at her daughter's back at school, while another girl yelled, kill her, kill her. At other times, the children pulled her hair and sometimes threw rocks at her when she was walking home from school. At the same time as the forensic team was searching the house, another team visited Dorothy's school and questioned her friends. They wanted to know her habits, what boys she knew, and whether any of them were strong enough to wreak the kind of havoc that they'd found in the otherwise neat house. Accounts vary as to the identity of H.T. The province newspaper reported that it stood for Harry Troes, a young son of family friends who lived in the Fraser Valley. In Joe Swan's account, H.T. was a young boy at Dorothy's school who was unaware of the crush that she had on him and who also had an alibi. Red herrings started to pile up one on top of the other. Neighbours reported that a large boy aged around 16 was seen firing a 22, the same calibre as a murder weapon, at Cairns on the vacant lot next to the Paul's home six weeks before the murders. Another neighbour reported that he'd seen a crazy man behind the Paul's home the Saturday night before they were murdered. He said the man walked towards them yelling crazily. He didn't call police. The only clues police had to go on in the Paul's murder investigation were a partial footprint in the garden, a bloody but unidentified palm print on the wall, and a dislodged rock in the garden that indicated the way the killer had fled. A neighbour told a province reporter that he saw a blue 1950 Ford parked in the back lane near the Paul's chicken coop on the night of the murder. A 13-year-old boy said he saw a blue car circling the block. The driver, he said, was alone and had a moustache. These leads went nowhere. At one point, police believed they'd found their murderer when Bellingham police arrested Henry Thompson, an 18-year-old Indigenous boy from the Fraser Valley. Thompson was charged with the attempted rape of Bellingham resident Sharon Sharp 11 years old, the same age as Dorothy, and the sexual assault and murder of Ethel Tussing, also of Bellingham, who was walking home after dropping off her daughter at a babysitting job. The attacks happened four days after the Paul's murder. The newspapers at the time reported that Thompson had come to Bellingham via Vancouver. He was convicted of second-degree murder. All this makes me wonder 
whether Dorothy may have known Henry Thompson. He lived in the Fraser Valley, and the Pauls had a farm and spent most weekends there. Perhaps he targeted her, or she may have even let him in. In this scenario, then it's the adults that become the collateral damage. Henry Thompson seemed like a really good suspect, but the only other mention I could find was a sentence at the end of a newspaper article that said he was on Vancouver Island at the time of the Paul's murders. It's quite possible that Dorothy was a real target. Retired Detective Sergeant Brian Honeyburn certainly thought so. Honeyburn is long retired from the Vancouver Police Department, but in 1996 he was put in charge of five detectives in the newly formed Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit, and the Pauls was one of the cold cases that they took another look at. I asked Honeyburn about his memories of the Pauls' murders. Did you actually reopen it while you were in Unsolved? I had a couple of members review it. And one member named Rod Brickard, he had been a Mountie and he was a constable on late duties. And several people had reviewed that file over and over and over. But Rod said, you know, he said, I think that's a sexual uh, predator because he said the little girl was displayed half in the bed and half out of it. How do you mean displayed? Well, she was nude and she was had her legs spread. That's when the police talk about display in a sexual okay. fashion. A lot of serial killers will do that. But I think it's got a sexual connotation to it, I really do. I tried to find out more about this alibi, but the police wouldn't talk to me because it's still considered an open case. So I filed a Freedom of Information request to the Vancouver Police Department in January of 2014. I filed an FOI asking to review three unsolved murder files. The Pauls, Evelyn Roche, and Lila Anderson, the subject of my next podcast, and because I think there may be a connection between all those murders. I was assigned a file number, and in April 2014, it was rejected. The reason given was that the disclosure of personal information is presumed to be an unreasonable invasion of a third party's personal privacy and clearly I'm quoting from the form. And further down in the letter, it said, We believe that releasing information related to unsolved murders could have a negative impact on the ability to conduct future investigations. We are therefore also denying access. I was told I had 30 days to request a review, which I did, because as far as I was aware, all the family members were dead, so I couldn't figure out how I could be invading a third party's personal privacy. And because after 60 years, the murderer was either dead or very close to it. And I couldn't see how letting me see and report on the case could possibly harm this supposed ongoing investigation. I wrote, The Paul's murder and associated crime scene photos have been on public exhibit at the Vancouver Police Museum for many years. Accounts of the Paul's murder have been written about in various books, including mine. Because the entire family was wiped out over half a century ago, there are no family members left to invade privacy. And because the murders have remained unsolved for nearly six decades, 
I would argue that publicising any information may bring about more leads, certainly not hinder an investigation that has been called for so long. There is a possibility that the Pauls murder and that of Lila Anderson and Evelyn Roche were committed by the same person. For this reason, I would like access to the Anderson and Roche files. I believe that after 55 years, it is in the public's interest to know at least as much as the police did at the time. My appeal to the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner for BC was rejected. I was able to get a copy of the inquest and access to the newspaper coverage at the time, and using this, I was able to find several possible motives for the murders. Some made sense. Some were frankly ridiculous. So let's unpack them, starting with motive number one, a botched robbery and a potential home invasion. This one was ruled out because while David's wallet was missing along with his house keys, it only contained a small amount of money. Nothing in the house was ransacked or even touched, including Helen's purse, which lay open on the table. Police later found several hundred dollars hidden in jars and socks. The robbery made sense if David was killed because he offered resistance, but it couldn't explain why a thief would also kill Dorothy and Helen. Motive number two. Dorothy was targeted by a peeping Tom. A peeping Tom had been reported in the area around the same time, and there was a partial footprint outside her window. Police had investigated a series of reports of peeping Toms in the area. Police theorised that the peeper was caught by David as he watched Dorothy undress. Like the robbery theory, it seemed extreme that a peeper would carry a gun and then wait around and take out the entire family. More likely, he would have fled. Motive number three, a case of mistaken identity. The Pauls bought the house from longtime residents Charles Geish, a police sergeant with the Vancouver Police Department, and his wife Violet. At 53, Geish was the same age as David Pauls, and they had a young daughter named Barbara. Geish said he had never met the Pauls, that it was merely a business transaction. The Geishas retired to Victoria, and Charles Geish died in 1986 at 81 years of age. Motive number four, the Mennonites did it. The Pauls were devout Mennonites, but they'd broken away from the church after David refused to tith a percentage of his earnings over to the church. Former Vancouver Police Sergeant Joe Swan either went so far as to note in his book Police Beat, 24 Vancouver Murders, that Mennonites told him that the killings were the will of God and refused to assist police. A bit creepy, perhaps, but not too surprising considering since Mennonites harboured a deep distrust and suspicion of police. It seems quite a stretch to take their lack of cooperation and the loss of a few dollars as a motive for a triple murder. Motive number five, it was the Russians. Another theory was that it was some unknown problem the Pauls had left behind in their native Russia. Swan published a rambling letter that police had received during the investigation and that sounded like it was written by someone who didn't have English as a first language. The letter was addressed to the chief of police and said, 
Dear Sir, the man you should go after for the murders is, and his name is blanked out in the letter. He once told me that the house would someday be his. He knew what he was doing, had everything arranged to look like a robbery, etc. He is a cunning crook. Stop looking for innocent schoolboys and question him. He is the one. Swan says rather than ignore this bizarre letter, police investigated because the name of the suspect, a Russian man that the Pauls had stayed with when they first came to Vancouver, had come up at another point in their investigation. Police took palm prints, which didn't match the print left on the wall, and applied a polygraph, which he passed. A revenge killing actually made sense, given the brutality of the murders. But then why not shoot Dorothy as well? Why beat David and Helen after they were dead, unless they were trying to send some kind of message? The Pauls family had always believed that David, Helen and Dorothy were murdered by the Russian mob because Helen overheard something she shouldn't have at work. The shoelace that was tied around David's wrist, they believed, was the signature of Russian criminals. The 1958 annual report for the Vancouver Police Department noted the investigation failed to indicate any definite motive. It is believed that one member of the family may have been the target, but that it was necessary to kill all three, since any of the others could have probably identified the killer. The murder weapon, or weapons, were never found. And in the end, Police interviewed more than 3,000 relatives, associates and friends from the Paul's past and present. According to the annual report of that year, numerous anonymous letters have been received and the leads investigated and all murder cases since then have been carefully compared. But no definite motive has been established and no suspects have been indicated. As horrific as the murders were, Five days later, a new event took over the front pages of the newspapers and the Pauls disappeared from sight. On June 17, 1958, the Second Narrows Bridge, now the Ironworkers' Memorial Bridge, collapsed, plunging 79 workers 30 metres into the water. 18 men and a diver who was searching for bodies died in the collapse. A pack service was held for the Pauls at the MEI Auditorium in Abbotsford on June 21st at 2pm. The family was buried at the Hazelwood Cemetery. A $14,000 award offered by Woodward's, the Vancouver Sun, the Vancouver Police Commission, CKNW and Mayor Fred Hume was never claimed. In 2015, the Pauls were the oldest unsolved murders added to the Vancouver Police Department's cold case website. The website is at vpdcoldcases.ca. This is where very cold cases go when police have completely run out of leads. There are currently 15 cases ranging from the Pauls to the most recent in 2008. In the next podcast about Lila Anderson, who was murdered on Christmas night in 1959, I'll be exploring a theory that a serial killer murdered Evelyn Roche, Dorothy Pauls, and Lila Anderson. 
If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast on the 1958 murders of David, Helen and Dorothy Pauls is based on a chapter from my book, Cold Case Vancouver. If you have any information about the Pauls murders or any other unsolved murder or missing persons case, please call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or visit their website, solvecrime.ca. Please visit my website, evelazarus.com, for more information on my books and podcasts. And if you'd like to join in the conversation about this and other murders, check out the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada, and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. (laughs) 